Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. I'm joined today by Daryl Bullock to discuss his new book, The Velvet Mafia, The Gay Men Who Ran the Swinging Sixties. Daryl Bullock is a writer specialising in music history and LGBT issues. He's the author of three books, including David Bowie Made Me Gay, A Hundred Years of LGBT Music. The Velvet Mafia tells the story of Larry Parnes, Lionel Bart, Robert Stigwood, Joe Meek, and most importantly for us, Brian Epstein. Daryl Bullock, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Um, hi, Joe. Um, I'm very well. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for asking me to be here. My pleasure. So you bring us uh, The Velvet Mafia, the, the gay men who ran the swinging 60s, a book which covers the kind of life and times of Larry Parnes, Brian Epstein, Joe Meek, Robert Stigwood and Lionel Bart. If we could start by what was the kind of inspiration behind writing this book um, and what, what kind of qualities was it about these five men? Uh, that attracted you and made you want to write about them? Well, I've always wanted to write a book about the Beatles. I, I'm obsessed with the Beatles. I grew up with the Beatles. I, I was born in 1964. I grew up in a house playing Beatles records, you know, and um, I wanted to write a book about the Beatles. But I think it's been everything that you could say about the Beatles has already been said in some way or another, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, <laughs> sometimes, you know, um, from people who just kind of made up as they went along. But I've always kind of convinced myself that I couldn't, I wasn't the right person to write a book about the Beatles. There wasn't a story in there that really excited me enough to kind of want to, want to dig around at it. And then I, a couple of years ago, I did a book called David Bowie Made Me Gay, which is a, a hundred year history of LGBT people making records. And I've, I've always been fascinated with the mechanics of making music, of making records, of, of everything from, you know, going in and recording to actually manufacturing that piece of vinyl and then going out and buying it, the whole process. But when I was writing that book, and which is specifically about musicians, I started thinking about the other side of the business. Because when you're talking to you know musicians, when you're interviewing people for for projects like this, little stories start to come out. You start to hear little things that you maybe hadn't heard before, or or maybe you just they trigger something in the back of your memory, and you start to think about things in a slightly different way. I find whenever I'm writing something, at some point there's this kind of little light bulb moment, a, a kind of little flash of inspiration that suddenly takes things off in a different way it usually kind of helps to to form the whole thing, if, if you see what I mean. So so while I was writing the last book, or writing David Bowie Maybe Gay, I had this idea that I'd like to look at the other side of the business. Um, and of course, I got really interested in, in Larry Parnes' story, how he started, how he developed, how he was intrinsic to everything that's happened in this country with rock and roll and pop music. Um, and... Through Larry, of course, you start to see the connections with Brian, with um, with Joe Meek, with Robert Stigwood, and so on, and so on, Lionel Bart, of course, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I guess it was it was a very long way of answering your question. It was because I love the Beatles, and I wanted to write something about the Beatles, and I was obsessed with the Beatles. But then I discovered through Larry's story a thread that hadn't really been followed before. 
Okay, so I mean, if we could start with Larry, um, he's the. I kind of found him to be the foundation, really, of, of the book. He's the first kind of character that we meet, and obviously, he's someone that that encounters the Beatles uh, very early on in their in their incarnations. If you could just tell us, first of all, a little bit about Larry Parnes, the Beatles famously auditioned for him. How did he get to be in a position where the Beatles were auditioning for him? Sure. Well, um, Larry was uh, a young gay Jewish guy who wanted to wanted to be someone. He wanted to be something. He had um, ambition, I guess. He initially thought he might be able to be a singer. He couldn't sing. He might be able to be an actor. He couldn't really act. He didn't really have the look for it for that kind of period anyway. So he was looking at other ways to get into the industry. Then through various contacts he had, and apparently um, through a relationship he had with the singer Johnny Ray, he became involved in, in the music industry, theatre and, and in music. And through that, he became kind of the, the prototype Simon Cowell. He was the first superstar manager in this country. He was our um, Colonel Tom Parker, if you like. But unlike um, the Colonel only had Elvis, Larry wanted more. Larry didn't want just one star, which would have been you know, Tommy Steele, his first major signing. He wanted, a, he wanted to build what became known as a stable of stars around him. Um, he had, so he had this idea that he could find young guys, because it's the 1950s, everyone's playing you know, acoustic guitars and, and skiffle in, in you know, corners of cafes all over London. He, he's, he's got this idea that he can find these young, cute guys and, and market them to this new tribe of people who have suddenly got money and buying records, the British teenager, you know, who prior to 1956 hadn't existed, just didn't exist. So that's kind of Larry's background. That's where he came from. He wanted to make a success of himself and he saw a way of doing that through managing. And I think what he, what he really wanted to do was get into theatre. He tried theatre first before he got into rock and roll, but I think he always had his eye on getting back into theatre and that's what he did obviously later in his career. He ended up auditioning the Beatles. That was uh, May 1960 at the Wyvern Social Club, which, you know, later became the Blue Angel. That, that, that annoys me. You, you keep reading about the Beatles auditioning for Larry Pines at the Blue Angel. They didn't. It wasn't called the Blue Angel then, you know. But Larry's, Larry's big star after Tommy Steele was a, a Liverpool singer called Billy Fury. And they'd gone back to Liverpool to find a backing group for Billy. They wanted to find a local beat group to play with Billy on tour. Uh, so they went and held open auditions at the Wyvern Social Club. And one of the bands that turned up to audition was the Silver Beatles. So pre the Beatles, still the Silver Beatles at this point, still with Tommy Moore on drums, just before Pete Best even. Uh, Tommy Moore didn't turn up. So they ended up getting Johnny Hutchinson in to sit in as drummer. And we've all seen that photograph of an incredibly bored Johnny Hutchinson, you know, surrounded by these, these three guys jumping around like lunatics and one guy with his back turned to the camera, which is, of course, Stu Sutcliffe. Mm. Um, they audition for Billy. Billy's there. John goes up and gets Billy's autograph. There's another famous photograph where you can just about see Billy's knee and John leaning over, over him as he asked to ask for his um, autograph which is quite weird when you think about it because Billy went to school with Ringo, but of course Ringo at that point wasn't a Beatle. Anyway, 
They auditioned for Larry and for Billy. They didn't get the job for, to back Billy because Larry hated Stuart. Larry thought quite rightly that Stuart couldn't play and he was, you know, he was dragging them back. He liked the rest of the band. He liked their energy, but he didn't like Stuart. Famously said to Lennon, I'll give you a job if you get, you know, if you drop him. And, and Lennon said, no, we're not doing it. You know, you know he, was, he was very loyal to Stuart as his best mate at that point. So they didn't get the job with Billy. But a week later, Larry phones up and says, I've got a job for you if you want it. It's backing another of my Liverpool singers, a guy called Johnny Gentle. He's going to go doing a short tour of Scotland. So um, uh, I can give you that gig if you want it which of course they jumped at the chance. So they're just a week after or eight days, nine days or so after the failed Billy Fury audition, they're off to Scotland with Johnny Gentle. Johnny Gentle had been touring La Britain with um, Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent. Cochran had fairly recently died. And as we all know, you know, the Beatles were huge Eddie Cochran fans. And of course on that tour, Johnny Gentle turned around um, and gave George the state, the shirt that Eddie Cochran was wearing on stage that last night in Bristol. Bristol's where I live. So there's a little, you know, little thing there. <laughs> and then the final little thing to tie into that, of course, is Johnny Gentle wrote a song on tour and he hadn't quite finished it and he wasn't really getting it. And the legend has it that it was John that gave him the, the middle eight for it, which of course was later recorded not by him first, but actually by Adam Faith on, a, on an LP for part of him. So um, obviously the Beatles didn't stay associated with Larry for several <laughs> reasons. Do we know what Larry kind of felt about the Beatles in hindsight? Was he, one, was he someone that would have been really upset that he didn't continue an association with the Beatles? Larry always claimed that he wasn't bothered that he didn't really want to manage groups, that he was much happier managing, you know, solo artists. And the vast majority of acts that, that Larry managed were solo, were, uh, solo singers or solo performers. Uh, he did at one point manage Tony Sheridan and Jimmy Nichol, both of whom, of course, have Beatles contacts. But Larry would have said that, you know, because he missed out on the biggest thing on the planet. So he was going to say that anyway. His PA, uh, Muriel, who I, talk, who I talked to for the book, she reckons that no, Larry actually wasn't very happy about it at all. And if, if Larry hadn't been such a tightwad, if he and Brian could have agreed terms, he would have ended up being their co-manager. Wow. Which is a fascinating thought. If that had happened, she reckons, you know, La uh, Larry didn't get the Beatles for want of a fiver a week, which is just <laughs> shocking when you think about it. Again, who knows how true that is, but that's, you know, that comes from somebody who was in the office at the time when they were writing the contracts. Right. So... I think, I think Larry definitely realised he'd missed a chance, but he was a very busy guy. And, you know, I, I couldn't really, I can't really think of Brian and Larry working together as, as, uh, as co-managers. It just wouldn't work. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, speaking about Brian, obviously that, that's going to get the heart of our conversation is going to be centred around Brian Epstein. Uh, I think your book is one of my favourite kind of descriptions of, of Brian's um, personality and, and life, really. It's, a, it's certainly a very interesting and, and complicated one. Um, I think it's, it would be nice if you could describe a little bit about what life was like for Brian in 
the 50s in Liverpool as uh, a gay man. Um, you know, your book's obviously very clear on the differences that life w- would have been like uh, for Brian had he been a, a gay man now. Well, Brian, like pretty much every homosexual man at that time, was living a double life. Brian was going to work for dad, you know, at NEMS um, and doing a very good job. He'd had his period in London, didn't work out, you know, he'd been at Radu, he's back home now working for the family firm and doing very, very well. Hmm. Doing very well, you know, the, the, the family were really pleased with the way things were going. But he had another side to his life. Um, Brian was attracted to bits of rough, should we put it that way? Brian hmm. liked guys who were not necessarily the kind of guys he should have been going out with you know brian was blackmailed on several occasions brian was beaten up on several occasions and the family lawyer was constantly getting brian out of trouble and there's a very famous case um referred to as the mr x case um where brian is trying to drag through court after he was beaten up by by some guy he picked up and taken to sefton park and um, he'd beaten him across the head with a, with a broken milk bottle. Brian was, like a lot of gay men, um, very conflicted. He was trying to do the right thing by his family. You know, he's living with this kind of very austere, very straight, for want of a better word, Jewish business family. You know, a very observant Jewish business family, I should say. Brian wasn't that observant, but the family very much were. Um, and so he, you know, although his parents knew he was gay, he'd already come out to them at this point. Mm he had to keep a profile. You know, he had to be seen to be um, the prominent young businessman. He couldn't be thought of as, you know, hanging around seedy joints like the magic clock or, or the, the, is it the, the basement, the Vic Feathers bar and, and places like that. But he was, you know, he had another life. He went cruising around Liverpool. He, he hung around, uh, you know, very well-known cruising joints in Liverpool to pick guys up. And quite often the guys he picked up were very much the wrong sort. Would there have been like a, a gay community in Liverpool at that time? Did Brian associate with, with other gay men? Yeah, there absolutely was. I mean, all major cities have their own gay communities, even you know, in the 50s and 60s. Okay. Liverpool being a port, uh, port cities always attract gay communities. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it sounds like a horrible stereotype to say it's because sailors come in. It's got nothing to do with, well, you know, um, the fact is that there's a throughput of new people all the time into these into ports. There are new people coming in. There are new people coming from abroad. There are new people with different attitudes towards sex and morals. So port cities have always attracted large gay communities. And Liverpool certainly had one. There were lots of bars in Liverpool, especially in the 1950s, the post-Second post World War, that were known to be gay bars or known to have gay or LGBTQ clientele, as we call them these days. Uh, the Bassinet is another place that, that springs to mind. Uh, there were lots of them around. The Magic Clock is a, is a famous one. There were, there were the theatre bars and, and other places like that. Brian had close gay friends joe flannery was a very good you know very close friend and and brian had a bit of a crush on joe flannery although it was never consummated that i'm aware of anyway um but who knows <laughs> joe never talked about it so you assume not mm. but yes i mean there was certain and and when brian moved to london several years later he took a lot of his gay associates with him or several of his gay associates with him 
Jeffrey Ellis was one who's a friend of his from Liverpool who, you know, who had gone to, um, to America to work for his insurance company and they come back and he come back to work for him in London. Uh, Terry Doran was another Liverpool associate who went down to work with him. Um, there were straight Liverpool associates, you know, people like Tony Bramwell who went down and worked with him as well. But yes, he certainly had a coterie of a small coterie of gay friends who were very loyal to him and moved with him to London when he needed that. So mm. he kind of took his, um, his community to an extent with him. That's typical Brian. I think that's, that's very Brian to surround himself <laughs> with, uh, with support like that. Okay, well, if we could come on to Brian and the Beatles, uh, 99% of the people listening to his podcast will know the, the story of, of how Brian encountered the Beatles. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at maybe kind of the psychological aspect of, of their union. Um, what do you think attracted Brian to the Beatles? I think very much in the same way that Larry Parnes looked at um, the acts that he took on. Brian was looking for this kind of, um, this way to live out his fantasy vicariously. So he wanted to be in show business in some way. And he saw this as a way in. I think, I think for him very much managing acts was his kind of inroad into that society that he desperately wanted to be part of and we all know from his time in liverpool for you know for his time in amdram and and hanging around theater bars and and going to rather for a while and all that kind of thing he was very focused on not necessarily being an actor himself but being part of that crowd he liked that world and i think for him managing an act like the beatles who were obviously going to go somewhere. They might not have been the big stars without him, but they were obviously going to go somewhere. I think that was his way out of Liverpool. That was his way out of the humdrum, very straight, you know, mid-twenties businessman and going into something that was much more flamboyant, much more exciting, much more um, theatrical. Hmm. So I think, I think initially that's, that was there. There was that buzz. But Brian was a businessman at the end of the day. You know, Brian knew there was a buzz around the Beatles. Brian, Brian had been seeing copies of, you know, the Mersey Beat on, on the countertop. He'd been hearing about them. People had been coming in asking for my Bonnie, all that kind of stuff had been going on. So he was a shrewd guy, Brian. And people don't give him a lot of credit for this. Brian was a shrewd guy. He saw a business opportunity here. He knew instinctively because he had ideas about stage presentation and design and all those kind of things. He instinctively looked at these four raw young men and, you know, apart from using the rattle line, oh, it was the trousers. It was very clearly, you know, he saw they're going to go somewhere. If I hitch my wagon to that, not only could I go somewhere, but we could all go somewhere bigger. Mm. You know, Brian, mm. Brian was switched on. But Brian very much wanted to impress John. Brian absolutely was besotted with John. There's no question about that at all. You know, even to the even to the extent of, you know, when he first met them, before he got them into suits, you know, buying himself a leather suit and you know wearing it around, wearing it on one occasion and being laughed at so much that he never wore it again. Poor bugger. <laughs> but um, Brian Brian loved John, and I think and John loved Brian as well. You know, in a in a heterosexual way they absolutely adored each other and brian constantly looked to john for validation 
when when Brian was having you know Brian was having an affair with Diz Gillespie, he took Diz Gillespie to John's house to meet John. He wanted John to he wanted John's stamp of approval so often. And I think he looked up to John, even though John was younger than him. He kind of looked at John as kind of like this big brother, maybe mm. you know, a much more worldly person, a much more savvy. Um, a man who could and again it had that kind of that kind of frisson that got a little bit of rough kind of thing going on there that really excited him what's your view of the um john brian spanish trip do you think that it happened you think there's no question about it john john told pete shot and it happened right you know why why would we why would we possibly think otherwise john told pete shot and what happened ignore all the rumors ignore all the lies ignore all the constant the nonsense that's made up without being based because i don't know you know how many younger people are listening into this but you know john told his best mate pete shotton the guy he got to school with the guy he'd been in the band with the guy he bought a supermarket for the guy he he looked after for as long as he possibly could that brian made a pass at him and eventually said okay get on with it and even McCartney has, has suggested that it wouldn't surprise him if John did that, because that's the kind of guy John was. Um, Yoko thinks it's perfectly possible that it happened. And the people that knew him best of all are saying, yes, it, I don't know it happened, but it wouldn't surprise me if it happened. So why should, why should anybody question it? You know, right. I, I think John would, John would try anything. Why not? Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Um, so outside of John... What do you think the other Beatles got from Brian? You know, they, they're all strong personalities, you know, in, in their own way. Maybe not quite as, as defiant as John, as outlandish as John. Individually, did they like Brian as much as see him as kind of a, just someone that, that could manage them? I, I think if we're talking about the post-Pete Best Beatles, then I don't think there's any question that all four of them absolutely loved Brian. They, they adored Brian and he adored them. And he was, he was without doubt their best, their most loyal champion. Although, yes, he, he was in awe of Lennon, absolutely in awe of, of, of John Lennon and his, you know, and his wicked tongue and his biting savagery and his evil, evil attitude at times. He was also possibly the only person who could actually control John Lennon at times. And so in that, or with that, the others had an ally in Brian as someone who would tell John off, who would say, you can't do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> to quote a song. Um, you, you know, you just don't do these things. You have to behave yourself a bit. So, so in some ways, kind of, Paul had an ally. George had an ally, certainly, in Brian. George adored Brian. There's a story in the book... Um, when George is in uh, San Francisco in 67, Nielsen comes over and they're just about getting Apple together. Uh, and this is just before Brian's, Brian sadly dies. They're just about getting Apple together and they're getting all these ideas. And George is talking to Nielsen about him coming on to, you know, coming on signing for Apple. And Nielsen turns around to him and says something along the lines of, um, I can't, I don't want to be managed by a fag. And George threw him out of the house. Now, Nilsson remained friends with all of them for years afterwards, but George threw him out of the house, There's, you know, because he wasn't having that. You didn't talk about Brian like that. Um, John, you know, famously, in the early days, when all these stories started to go around Liverpool about, about um, Brian and Brian's sexuality and, you know, which one of you does he fancy, all that kind of stuff, they were standing up for him. They adored Brian. 
and it does kind of annoy me when you when you hear all these stories about you know john being a, a homophobe and all that kind of, it's just crap you have to put things into their context and and appreciate that these are guys that grew up in the 1940s and 1950s it was a completely different time but there is no question in my mind that these people adored each other i agree again completely we spoke a little bit about what life was like for brian in in liverpool in the 50s um if we could look at how his life, obviously, his life dramatically changed almost overnight over the course of uh, 1963 and into 1964, where he's, he's almost as famous as the Beatles themselves, um, not only as their manager, but obviously also as manager of, of Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, as Scylla, uh, and, you know, a good number of others that had varying amounts of success. Um, how did being incredibly famous affect Brian and change him from that guy that we we make at the start of the book that was in Liverpool in the 50s. Brian loved being famous. He loved everything that went along with it. He loved the money. He loved the fame. He loved the fact that he was, you know, being mentioned by his own name in the newspapers. He adored the idea that, well, you know, when they were uh, invested with the MBEs, that one of them turned around and said MBE stands for Mr. Brian Epstein. He loved all that absolutely reveled in it and that's because that's kind of what he wanted he wanted this uh, reflected glory i suppose you might call it but uh, but brian you know definitely wanted to be a star in a in some way or another and this was his his route to stardom his former stardom and and on you know this longer path he would have gone on and maybe into kind of in further into theater management and, and stuff like that later mm. um, uh, he adored it and and the great thing about him is once he moved to London, before the drugs got too much and, and his own depression became such a major issue, he was having a whale of a time. He was meeting, you know, he's meeting Judy Garland, who he adored. He was meeting incredibly famous people all the time. He was, uh, he was going out to what we would now look at as, as, you know, gay pubs and clubs and having a riot but also, you know, doing an incredibly stressful job, managing the biggest act in the world and, and you know, everybody else that goes along with it. But no, I mean, Brian's life changed massively moving down to London and for a period at least, uh, for the better. Let's um, edge away from Brian just, just temporarily because the next kind of character in the book that I think is one of the most interesting parts of the book is the figure of Robert Stigwood, um, probably a man best known, maybe best known now for his, his Bee Gees association. Um, but obviously the, the book goes into some great detail. That there's an, an awful lot more to him uh, than just that particular group. If you could tell us a little bit about, about Robert Stigwood, he, he kind of edges himself into the, the Beatles picture in, in kind of 67. Um, again, how did he kind of arrive uh, on the scene? Stigma was a bit of a chancer. He'd come over from Australia with next to no money in his pockets. Um, interestingly, like Brian and Larry, he had aspirations to be involved in theatre and he had managed um, theatre acts and stuff And while he was in Australia. But he'd come over here with next to no money in his pocket and got a job as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman um, before working as a bouncer in a lunatic asylum. I mean, he was just, he'd take any old job, you know, you, God love him, he'd take any old job to make a few bucks. And then happened to meet a guy called Stephen Kamlosi, who, through his family, 
um, funded his first business, Robert Stigwood Associates, um, set him set him up, set him up as a as an artist manager. I think, if I remember correctly, the first act proper that Stigwood signed was a theatre group based in Bristol. Um, but then he starts to get involved in people with people like Johnny Layton and Mike Berry and and, and acts like that. Um, Stiggy, again, he was one of these people that was that had vision he had an idea about what he wanted and he certainly was a very creative person but he was let down by his issues around alcohol and gambling and, and gambling certainly affected brian as well it once he moved down to london and met stigwood and started gambling like crazy so so stigwood was always out of money he was always always running out of money and kind of robbing peter to pay paul and and it eventually becomes too much for his for Stephen Camelosi, who was his uh, business associate, his actually partner in the business at that time, he was signing completely useless acts that nobody had heard of, and nobody wanted to hear of, and nobody would buy records by just because he liked the look of them mostly, you know. And and as Camelosi admits, he was at least a year too late on jumping onto the the Beats bandwagon. You know, he was still signing solo acts or taking singers from groups and signing them rather than looking at signing groups. You know, everybody, you know, everyone was interested in, in, in the Beatles, of course, and then, you know, and then the Stones and the Kinks and the Who and, and everything else that came along. He was still signing these hopeless solo acts that, it, that were at least a year past their sell-by date. So although Stigwood had vision, had ideas, he had some really interesting ideas about how to market people. He, he was rubbish with money, so he needed somebody else to kind of rein him in, needed somebody to sort him out. And if you look at Stigwood's career, Every time he does well, it's when somebody else is signing the checks. Every so often, he meets another um, another guy that's good with money or careful with money to sign the checks and to sort things out and to sort his problems out. You know, there's a, there's a story when um, Stephen Camelosi was waiting for him to turn up with money to pay the bills, to pay the rent, to pay the PA, to pay the secretary, and he'd spent it all the night before in, in gambling. And it wasn't his money in the first place. This was, this was their cut from, from one of the bands they managed. So he was always, they were always fighting. He was always at odds with people because he just, he was so rubbish money and he needed somebody else. And it's only kind of when Polydor bailed him out with, uh, with RSO in, in, in kind of 67, 68 period that he starts to, you know, he gets money again. And then when RSO starts to sink, Polydor bail him out again and they buy up all his shares he needs somebody else to look after the money because he's just rubbish with it. What was his relationship with Brian like? How did they um, kind of meet each other and, and become friends? Um, they met at a club in, in London. Um, I think it was a engineered meeting, if I remember correctly, um, by um, a guy that used to work for one of the um, pop magazines at the time. Um, Stigwood had in, in interest in several pop magazines. Um, Brian was obviously interested in the Beatles, but monthly guys that ran both were living or working doors away from each other. So they would often associate together. They drink together, they talk together, they work together. And they kind of engineered this meeting between Brian and, and Stigwood at one of the clubs, the Mirabelle club or whichever it was. I, I, I forget now it's in the book. Why the book is in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, they, they got on like a house on fire. They're both gay. They're both entrepreneurs. They're both gamblers. They both like a drink. Um, and so they kind of gravitate to each other. And they, spend, they start spending a fair bit of time in each other's company. And certainly 
by 66 and tail end of 66 when Brian's starting to think about how he can extricate himself in a way from managing all of these groups that NEMS have got or all of these acts that NEMS have got and just concentrate on the Beatles and on the Savile Theatre and stuff like that. He's looking at, at Stigwood as a potential um, investor or, or co-manager of the business. What do you think the Beatles would have made of Stigwood? Uh, in the, I watched semi in preparation for this. I watched the um, the Arena documentary about Brian Epstein from 1998, which mm. feels like it was more recent than that, but but obviously not. Um, and, and McCartney talks a bit about Stigwood in in that documentary, and he you know he says that they would have recorded um, "God Save the Queen" out of tune for right. for, for Stigwood. What what do you think? it was about Stigwood that the Beatles just didn't kind of connect with. I don't think it was Stigwood. I think it was anybody. Mm. They, they were still fiercely loyal to Brian. And even though things weren't right, you know, even though Brian was having major issues at that point with, with his depression and, you know, there's a possibility that he may have been bipolar. It was never, it was never ever diagnosed, but certainly with his depression and with, you know, his drug intake, they were fiercely loyal to him and they didn't want to work for anybody apart from Brian. It was Brian or nobody as far as they were concerned. You know, at this point, you know, they're growing up, they're in their mid twenties. Now they've, they've had, you know, several years of success. They are the biggest thing on the planet. They're not going to work for anybody else, no matter who it is. It doesn't, it's not just Stigwood. It could have been anybody that come along at that point. They didn't want to know. And what they really didn't want is as much as they loved him, they didn't want Brian selling them from behind their backs, you know, making a deal without them being involved in it. Perhaps yeah. they'd have sat down and Brian had said, I can't cope with the, the work at the minute. I need a break. I need somebody else to come in. Can we talk about this? Who, what do you think? That might have had a completely different attitude. But I think there was a feeling within the group, and certainly for Paul, who's always been incredibly money-focused, that, um, that they were being sold down the river by Brian and they weren't very happy about that at all. So no matter who would come in at that point, they'd have said, no, I'm not doing it. Quite understandable as well. Um, I mean, if we could talk a little bit about the, the issues there that, that you mentioned Brian had in those last, you know, nine months, year or so of his life, um, even though it's, you know, your book is a celebration of, of these people. I think it's important to look at some of the, the issues that, that they encounter as well. Um, as you said earlier in our conversation, you know, he was incredibly happy for large chunks of, of those kind of fame years. Um, what, what do you think changed? What were the reasons that led him to start to uh, feel like his life was going a little bit awry? He was certainly, he wasn't happy with his homosexuality, even though he was living in a place where he could be a little more open than he certainly could have been in Liverpool. He wasn't, he wasn't a happy gay man. Although I always find it really interesting that, you know, one of those last interviews he gave, he starts talking about, you know, the decriminalization of homosexuality, which is at that point on the agenda. And he's talking about it in very positive terms and saying how great it's going to be and how he thinks that everybody will understand that this is a good thing. So I think if he'd held out a little bit longer, his life would have been a lot happier, maybe. But he, was, he wasn't a happy gay man, but he was also having issues with, certainly having issues with depression. His father's death really affected him badly. This, you know, this, that was a big, big, big blow. And suddenly having, 
you know, being the, the eldest son of a Jewish family, having everything landed upon him. So he's got the family responsibility as well as the business responsibility. That's another big issue. Knowing that the Beatles are pulling away from him, knowing that they didn't need as much management anymore. I mean, I think it was Tony Bramwell that, that I was talking to about this. And he was telling me that, you know, at this point, they didn't need any management. They, they'd signed all their contracts. They, they were contracted with EMI you know, for another five years. They didn't need that. They'd stopped touring. So there were no contracts to sign then. You know, the money was pouring in. Apple was already starting. There wasn't a lot of work to do around the Beatles at that time. You know, they didn't need a lot from that, from Brian. So even if they, they hadn't have parted ways, there was still a definite, there was a, def, a definite change. They'd, they'd, they'd clearly met, you know, a, a, a T-junction and they were going in opposite directions. They were doing different stuff. They didn't need him as much. They weren't as reliant on him anymore. And I think that was a big issue for him. So that obviously affected his depression. I think depression was the thing that really more than anything, you know, ended up with him kind of self-medicating, taking mm. so many drugs, taking so many drugs, not knowing what he was taking. Um, and, and, which eventually led to you know, horribly to to his sad and ridiculously early death at just thirty two. Mm. Mm. It's it's a really uh, it's a really striking kind of point I think in in the Beatles' career um, when they lose Brian and it is a loss. I think that's it's not you know that's the only thing the only way that it can be described. You know when you look at that footage that, that you know I'm sure we've all watched many times of them being interviewed when they're down in Banger um, yeah. and they find that news that, you know, the, the looks on, on their faces is, is, you know, it's striking even now watching it 50 plus years later. Um, John looks awful in that. Absolutely awful. He's just had the worst news. I mean, the you know, worse probably for him at that time than, you know, thinking about to, to when Julia had been run over or, or whatever. John is, completely bereft at that point and i think that that's another testament of how much these people loved each other john is genuinely freaked he's he's lost he looks like a little lost boy you know george is trying to keep it together and talk about you know what they're being told by you know um the maharishi and john looks shell-shocked he's a rabbit in this rabbit in the spotlights at that point he's he's lost and and i they would never get over brian's death um and it really was uh, the beginning of the end, as far as I can see. Yeah. Just to kind of move to a conclusion now, um, obviously outside of, of Stigwood, Brian and, and Larry Parnes, uh, Joe Meek and Lionel Bart feature in, in your book as well, um, who were, of course also had their, their Beatle connections as well that, that we could have spoken about. Um, what kind of legacy do you think these five men left both the the kind of show business world that they they came from, and for the LGBTQ community as a whole, the obvious legacy is the music they've left behind, or the music that they helped. So they might not have, you know, they might not have strummed a guitar or sang into a microphone or rattled a tambourine. Although I think even, you know, even Brian tried that occasionally. <laughs> but um, what they did, they they helped create what we would now recognize as, you know, as, as the birth of rock and roll and pop music in this country. And, and, and without Larry Pines, without Brian Epstein and, and those people, we wouldn't have the musicians we have today. And, and people can scoff at that. People can laugh as much as they want to, but it's, it's inescapable. 
every single act in the world today is influenced in some way or another by the Beatles. You cannot get away from it. It's inex it's inescapable, you know. Um, just as the Beatles were, you know, influenced by by Little Richard and and Elvis and and you know and acts like then you know Chuck Berry and all those kind of people. Their legacy, the legacy of Brian, certainly is the legacy of those four guys, and Scylla and Jerry and all those other things. And and what you know, and there's always the thought of what Brian might have gone on to if he'd have if he'd have lived longer. I personally believe if he'd have lived longer that he would have seen Scylla set up with her with her BBC career. You know, mm. she she was just on the cusp of becoming a major international cabaret star. And he would have gone that way. He would have become much bigger in theatre. He was starting to make a success of the Savile. You could see what was going to happen. Um, Brian probably wouldn't have stayed in pop music for much longer, but he, I think he would have moved into theatre and TV, possibly even film. Larry, you know, moved into theatre with great success, as did Stigwood before Stigwood got involved in film. So I think all of them would have gone from shepherding pop music, if you like, for that period into a wider entertainment uh, business, into ent entertainment industry. They would have been bigger stars, if you want to call them stars, bigger personalities in a much wider field. But the legacy for the LGBTQ community is, is first and foremost that these people were working at a time when it was illegal to be gay. Um, it was illegal to be gay. People forget that. You could not be gay. You could be locked up just for being homosexual. Isn't that ridiculous? That is the, that's a fact. Mm. You didn't have to be having sex with another man. You just had to be a homosexual. If you were thought of being a homosexual and, they, and you were arrested and you were prosecuted, you could go to prison. It's just ludicrous. So these guys were creating the most incredible or helping to create the most incredible time in, in, a, in the 50s and 60s when they had to constantly be looking over their shoulder in case, you know, in case they were going to get nabbed by the police. And in Brian's case, he did get nabbed by the police several times. Joe, Joe Meek sadly got nabbed by the police, you know, and there's, you know, led to that awful scenario where, you know, he, he killed his landlady and then killed himself. The legacy is that they helped to create everything because the Beatles did kind of create everything, you know, everything happened because, you know, hairstyles, fashion, Phil, everything has, has changed because of what, you know, what the fifties and sixties did and, and, you know, and, and Tommy Steele and Billy Fury and the Beatles and, and all those kind of other acts were central to that. You cannot, you cannot escape how important these people were to the way we live our lives today. It's, it's ines inescapable and Larry and Brian and, and, and Joe and, and Lionel and Robert and all those other people were really integral part of that story. They absolutely were. And uh, yeah, I think your book covers that really beautifully. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a fascinating and uh, eye opening story. Um, the Velvet Mafia, the, the gay men who ran the, the swinging 60s. Well, Daryl, thanks so much for joining us and uh, thanks so much for your time. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this last hour or so. Well, thank you very much. It's been great fun. And um, yeah, by the book. 